the blockchain makes total sense and yeah. made up nonsense money to me does not that's a fair comment i'm sure there's gonna be people that will debate you on on all of that i'm scott mcgrew welcome to sand hill road as you write your life story you're far from finished are you looking to close the book on your job maybe turn a page in your career be continued at the georgetown university school of continuing studies Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The M13, I'm assuming that's named after the star. That is the most insightful. Uh, um, I've never actually had anyone get that right off the bat but yes messier 13 that's exactly how it's named and how did Everyone that come about salvadorian uh, gang uh <laughs> it's either no. it's, it's either right. a very a very important part of the the galaxy or a salvadorian gang yeah how did yeah, it come about the, how you did... pick you know it's pick your own adventure <laughs> <laughs> this week on sand hill road carl alomar who is definitely not the leader of a dangerous central american criminal enterprise as managing partner at M13, Alomar makes early stage investments. How did that come about, that name? The idea of the name is that um, the Messier 13 is the, you know, brightest galaxy of stars in the in the sky, brightest cluster. And, um, and the idea is that the brightness of any of the individual stars is, or the brightness of the galaxy is greater than the brightness of the individual stars added together. I call Carl up because we've all been asking ourselves, with the economy showing us mixed signals, where does venture go from here? It's a question we ask ourselves every day. But yes, um, the interesting thing is there's a significant amount of money sitting on the sidelines. We know that uh, we know that um, investors want to invest. We see it ourselves. We have to put our money to work. Um, the The situation right now is that. I think everybody is really taking their time. They they have time as opposed to where we were a year ago where every deal was rushed. And so they're being very analytical, very careful, and everyone's trying to pick the best companies. But it is a challenging time to raise money. Now, you said, you know, it's a time to be careful. It's a time to, you know, pick companies uh, carefully. Well, but all times are times to pick companies carefully. They are. Isn't but but the, the reality of the situation is... Um, when you go into a hot market where everybody's trying to invest, then you get people fighting tooth and nail for, for participation in the round. And as a result, you do get into situations where you do get confident and comfortable with the company, but you don't have the opportunity to do the level of diligence you'd want to do um, in a typical investment. And so you're forced into quick decisions in some cases. Today, that doesn't happen. But historically, that has been the case, especially in the last two, three years where the market's been so hot. Um, so I think now, you know, firms like ours essentially have the luxury of really being able to spend time 
and get to know companies before making their investments rather than being rushed into decisions before they're truly ready to make those decisions. When times were flush, were you making quick decisions and did you end up regretting any of them? Luckily, we haven't regretted any decisions. Um, I would say we have probably in a couple of different occasions been forced into moving quicker than we would have typically wanted to move. Yes. But I well, in a weird way, this kind of uh, advantage venture capital, right? I mean, as opposed to advantage startup. I think it's healthier on both sides. I think it's healthier on, on um, you know, us because we're actually able to build relationships with companies and, and get to know them better and, and you know, make much more uh, kind of clear decisions on, on who we love and who we want to support. But I also think for the founders as well, instead of being bombarded by 100 different venture firms that are all sell, 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 you're actually getting to know the people that are going to sit across the board table from you for the next five, 10 years, and you're getting to understand them much better and understand the way they think. And I think that's a huge advantage as well. Um, whereby in the old days, it's like everybody's throwing all their credentials at you and you kind of, you know, even as a founder might end up making the wrong decision in terms of who you want to, who you want to be funded by. That's but, true. Um, yeah. There was a speed dating sort of to it on yeah. both sides. The venture was competing with each other for, what startup they could grab, but then the startups were overwhelmed with the number of venture that they were being offered. Yes, it worked both ways for sure. So what do you need to see if you are going to do a follow-on fund or are you going to do a, a, a new investment? What do you need to see in this environment out of a startup? So I think they're two different things. I think with the follow-on funds, we know these companies really well. And we understand our thesis on the companies and really um, what we need to see in that regard is a validation of our thesis. Like, do we truly believe that these companies can build what they're saying to build is their validation with their customers? You know, we're intimately working with them every day. The key thing is to try and divorce emotion from the, the discussion and really focus on like true value of the business. And that's what we try and do in terms of our follow-on investments. But for us, it's relatively obvious where companies... Um, feel like they have real potential but are not but the market condition is getting in the way of them raising money and we we do what we can in those situations not only to put our money in but also to help them you know fill that round and secure capital from from other places in the meantime um from an outside investment standpoint i don't think the rules have changed i think um you know we're still looking for great great teams we're still looking for great market categories that are you know defining defining businesses within particular market categories, um, you know, uh, good metrics, good validation on as many fronts as possible. Do they have customers? Do they have revenue? You know, is the product um, impactful in the market? Uh, so a lot of the same things, I think that it just gives us the ability to be a lot more detailed in understanding that. So we speak to customers, we speak to stakeholders, we, you know, we get a much better feel for how the business is running as a whole. Uh, and that gives us much more confidence in, you know, the opportunity and the outcome. What recommendations do you have to companies that uh, are not getting funding, uh, uh, who either can't get follow-up funding or decide maybe they don't want it? Um, well, you know, it's very different for different types of companies. So, you know, for companies that are saying, I'm going to need to go to the market a year from now to raise money, then my biggest suggestion is start building those relationships today. You want, you know, insiders as well as outsiders potential investors to get to know you and get to know the company early so that when the decision time comes, it's very easy for them to make a decision. For companies that are, um, 
you know, for, that are short of capital and wanting to go to market quickly, but not seeing the opportunity or not getting the opportunity. I mean, it is, it's a tough road. Uh, if they don't have a lead inside investor that has the ability to, to do an inside round, then they're really challenged to go out and find new investors. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, it definitely is a question of, um, you know, numbers like, you know, you have to speak to a lot of people, you have to connect to a lot of people, you have to just kind of work, work, work and push those walls down until you get to, you know, you only need one yes, you only need one firm to believe in you. And so you, you do have to do the work to get that done. But it's challenging. I mean, um, you know, often I get asked the question, should companies, you know, cut half their staff and this, that and the other? And in some cases, yes, they need to. But when you only have two, three months of money or two months of money, you know, how much are you going to extend by, you know, giving up 10% of your cost? It's, it's not the thing that's going to save you. Um, but ultimately, you, you need to find that capital. You need to be able to go about 24 months, you've recommended. I'd say from the point of investment, yes. From the point of investment, 24 months. I mean, you can't say 24 months forever because if you're 12 months into raising, into having raised money, then you're not going to have 24 months left. But uh, I think the goal right now is from the point of investment, have at least 20 mo- 24 months of breathing room. And then obviously, if the markets turn, you may be able to opportunistically raise money You know, well before that. You had said to Bloomberg that this is different than it was in 2008 in the global financial crisis, that in th- there was no money to be had back then, but now the money's just sitting on the sideline. Yes, absolutely. Night and day difference. And so I, I was a founder back in those days. Now I'm an investor, so I've kind of sat on both sides of the, of the table there. But back in the 2008 era, all the money dried up. There was literally no money to go around. And so everybody was really just struggling to navigate how they were going to get through and they didn't have avenues to find money. I think the the way the market is now is you kind of see the market on a temporary pause. And, and one of the key things to think about is as long as there's a huge amount of volatility in the valuation set that, that companies are using to assess your business, so the public market's volatile, there's no real stability, then, you know, you going out to try and pull money or try and get a valuation from, a, from an investor is going to be challenging. And so um, the investors are going to basically be nervous about how to set price, how to do these things. It's on pause. But as the market stabilizes, so if we go to Q1, Q2, and we see the, you know, the stabilization of the equity markets and, and the slow growth again of technology stocks, then that gives a baseline for investors to start investing again. And you know they're going to need to invest. So right now it's a patience game. It's like how, how you know you have to survive through the time frame. Back in 2008, we didn't even know if the, the financial markets were ever going to come back. And it was, uh, it was more about trying to figure out how, how can businesses survive. And I think uh, you know, I ended up um, being acquired back then. And I think uh, there was probably a lot of M&A going on just of companies that knew that they weren't going to be able to continue to fund through, uh, through venture sources. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Are there things you've done at M13 to to batten down the hatches, so to speak? Um, With our portfolio, yes. I think a lot of our focus this year has been uh, on internal portfolio companies and thinking about how to help them navigate the environment. Um, You know, as a firm, I think, you know, we're lucky in that we're a fund. We have fixed revenue. We have fixed, you know, fee structure. So we are able to continue to provide the same level of support to our portfolio companies as we were, you know, a year ago or two years ago. But in terms of how we think about deploying our capital, we think about, um, you know, the best companies in our portfolios and how we can support them follow on funding. And then we think more modestly about how do we continue to roll out investments into new businesses. And so uh, there is a slight change in the way that we approach um, you know, our model and, and our business to kind of accommodate for the market condition. You've invested in in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin businesses. Is that something you would do again? Yes, I think we still believe. Uh, so just to be clear, most of our investments are actually infrastructure uh, in crypto. And so we really believe in the infrastructure of blockchain and the future of that and the applications of that into the future. Um, there are more speculative uh, opportunities for investment out there around, you know, tokenization and, and things that. I think one of the worst. I think one of the worst things that happened to the blockchain was cryptocurrency. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps the blockchain makes total sense, and yeah. made-up nonsense money to me does not. That's a fair comment. I'm sure there's going to be people that will debate you on on all of that. I I probably align closer to you, just in the sense of. You know, uh, there are too many, um, too many coins out there. There are too many. There's, I think, eighteen thousand different coins out there. The the uh, value in a lot of the NFT projects out there, I think, is is hard to find. But you know, there are diamonds in the rough. You know, there are gems out there that you can find that have real, you know, uh, solid technology, solid value. And and I think if you find those, there is value there. Ultimately, though. I'm personally a real believer in the infrastructure side of it. You know, if if you can invest in things that will feed the future uh, blockchain environment, kind of the Web3 environment, then those will survive when, you know, the application layer of things may, you know, may consolidate or may fade away over time. You, uh, in an interview, you said one of your regrets was not taking uh, cryptocurrency for, from a company called NBA Top Shop. Uh, they offered you a million in coins instead of taking equity, and you took the equity. Have you tracked the value since? Well, we didn't take the equity. It was actually a, um, it was, uh, they didn't give us the option of equity. 
It was invest in the coin or nothing. Um, NBA Topshop, yeah, I mean, at the point that we uh, were being offered the million dollars, I think there was a peak moment where it was worth $360 million or something. I wouldn't call it a regret. Uh, I think the question that I was asked was, you know, is there a deal you think you missed that you would have? Okay, so you did not, you ultimately did not end up taking taking a position in Topshop because yeah. they, they would only offer the coin. Exactly. And at the time, I think the regret was, that we weren't thinking about, you know, the ever-evolving investment marketplace and the type of asset that we were willing to invest in and buy. I mean, since then, we've we've done a number of deals where there's been a combination of equity and tokens and things like that. But at that time, it was the very first one that came across. And we were just very, very hesitant about the idea of taking a token position rather than agile equity in the business. The business has boomed. I mean, it's it's doing incredibly. It's done incredibly well. Obviously, the markets as a whole are fluctuating pretty significantly. But, but as I said, there was a time where it was a three hundred sixty million dollar value from a potential million dollar check, and at that moment in time, which is probably when I was asked the question, um, obviously, it would have been nice to return our, our, you know, our overall fund plus some from one small investment, and that would have been uh, a good outcome. But you haven't tracked tracked the worth of it since. I don't know the worth of it today, but I do know obviously it's come down significantly from there. But uh, but it still even today would be a very valuable return on on the million dollar investment. But do you uh, think but, obviously we want to we want to get rid of you know crypto exchanges and things that that are not working with the world honestly, etc. But do you do you see this shakeout as being healthy? Yeah. I mean, shakeouts often are healthy. Uh, it goes back to what you said. I think a lot of the projects and a lot of the businesses out there are, you know, a house of cards and they're building, you know, unsustainable, um, you know, constructs for token valuation or NFTs or whatever it is or coin valuation. And so I think having a shakeup that makes people think about, okay, let's tr- look at true value and look at what provides utility those are the things that will survive the long run. And one of the key theses of kind of how I think about investing is I don't really care if something's going to boom, you know, NBA Top Shop as a um, uh, as an example. I don't really care if it booms in a year. I want to know what it's going to look like five to 10 years from now. That's our investment horizon. And I want to make sure that, you know, we've seen so many businesses flare up and then disappear. You want businesses that have sustaining power and have the ability to build, you know, multi-billion, multi-decabillion valuations um, in the five to ten years ahead, rather than something that's going to create like a quick return a year from now. And so, uh, I just think it's a healthier investment philosophy to think about, you know, the fundamentals of a business and how that's going to really create value over the long term. What do you? What makes you happy in this job? Why? What makes you excited to go to work on a Monday morning? So I love this job. It's the best job I've ever had. Um, I've spent, you know, prior to this job, 20-ish years, um, slightly more than 20 years, running companies my, myself, founded two of them, uh, was COO at, at the third, DigitalOcean. And uh, that doing that is the hardest job in the world. Taking that knowledge and that experience and everything that I've gained and all the relationships and everything that I've built over those years and giving that, you know, sitting day to day with a series of young, energetic, innovative, super smart entrepreneurs 
and helping them navigate through the challenges that I had to go through so that they can accelerate through them far better and, and achieve far bigger things than I have achieved is the most exciting thing that I could ever wish for. And I think every Monday morning coming in and knowing that I'm going to speak to these really creative and just inspiring founders all week and, and navigate problems on a day-to-day basis is just very exciting for me, a lot of fun, uh, you know, very, very rewarding. Carl Alomar, Managing Partner at M13. Sandhill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.